I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. us all. This war in Iraq isn't the end, it's the beginning of wars to come all around the world at the whim of the neocons in the White House. This is the Bush Doctrine come to life. War, war, and more war. War brought to you by the big corporate masters who run the show. This isn't just a war on Iraqis or Afghanis or even Arabs or Muslims. It is ultimately a war on us all. That's because the billions and billions of dollars that are being spent on this war, the cost of tanks, rocketry, bullets, and yes, even salaries for the 125,000 plus troops, is money that will never be spent on education, on health care, on the reconstruction of crumbling public housing, or to train and place the millions of workers who have lost manufacturing jobs in the past three years alone. The war in Iraq is, in reality, a war against the nation's workers and the poor who are getting less and less while the big defense industries are making a killing, literally. What's next? Iran? Syria? North Korea? Venezuela? We've already seen the corporate media play megaphone to the White House to build and promote a war based on lies. War is utilized by the imperialists first and foremost to crush internal enemies. We're seeing the truth of his insight when we see the sad state of American education, the rush of seniors to buy affordable medications from the Canadians because American drugs are just too expensive, the threatened privatization of Social Security, and the wave of repression that comes with an increasingly militarized police. This is a war on all of us. And the struggle against war is really a struggle for a better life for the millions of folks who are in need here in this country. The fight against the war is really to fight for your own interests, not the false interests of the defense industries or the corporate media or the White House. Down with the wars for empire. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Are you still fighting that battle? Or, or yes. That? Oh, yes. Absolutely. We're still fighting that wow. battle. You need to know why they're coming, who they're associated with, what weapons they have access to, because they're going to come back. Most of those stories, the bad guys are the ones who win. You're 100% right. I, I prefer to say, don't be a dumbass, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hey 
everyone, it's David Bomble back with a very special guest. John is the author of this book, The Art of Cyber Warfare. John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about how did you get to this point? And I believe it's got something to do with basketball, or you can go further back if you like. I started out my career as an engineer, uh, a real passion for technology. I enjoyed what I did. When I got out of the military, I went back to school, became a, a Cisco network engineer, and did that for a number of years. You did CCNA, is that right? You bought a bunch of equipment, did CCNA. I did. A tech bubble had, had burst, and on eBay, you could get you know, $5,000 routers for like $500. You know, I was scooping things up, buying books and self-taught and going to take certification tests. And I was working blue collar jobs. I was military police officer when I was in the military, but when I got out, I had a lot of tattoos. And at the time, local police departments weren't hiring back then. That was in like, you know, 99, 2000, 2001. So that was what I did working blue collar. I was like, I, I want to do something different. So I just started buying equipment and teaching myself. And I got, you know, I think I got a CCNA. I got a Microsoft certification in CSA. And uh, then I started working on the Cisco CCNP. So anyway, before I even had a job, I had all these crazy certifications, which was really, really cool because I was super motivated. And then I got into the field and I started working at a place called uh, General Dynamics on a help desk. They gave me a clearance and that clearance opened a lot of doors for me. As a side hobby for fun, I started doing like open source uh, research and I started looking at different threats I would see in the news and playing with different tools and just writing a blog about it. Well, long story short, I ended up getting recruited to work for the government. Uh, I, at the time, a lot of the uh, the groups from uh, non-US companies were, were starting to, to form programs that they eventually used for espionage. And they needed intelligence analysts with cyber background, and they felt like it was easier to take the cyber aspect, someone who was technical, and teach them the intelligence side. So they sent me off to school for that, became a signals intelligence analyst, uh, and I did that for a long time for, uh, for one of the, the government agencies that's in the intelligence community. Uh, around 2014, I got out and I went into the private sector. So it was 2013, 2014. It was around that time when I really had decided uh, towards the end of that time frame that I, I wanted to get back to, to writing and I wanted to write a, a book or maybe write something with someone. I wasn't quite sure. And I remember I had get I gotten out and I, of, of the government side and I'd taken a job with a with a commercial firm. It was a it was a company that I'd always wanted to work for. It was my it was literally it was my dream job. And yeah. you know, I, I got there and I'm trying to get acquainted and you know, everything's different. In the government, you have all these secret squirrel tools that help you do your job and they make Make it pretty easy in comparison to not having them and then to rely on your technical resources. Because I had all these this background with open source, I had gotten really good in, in doing research as well as doing um, dynamic uh, malware analysis and you know even some static malware analysis. And anyway, I, I was pretty good for, for somebody who had been on the government side for being able to still do research. So I felt comfortable. But when I went into this place, they had their own proprietary system. They had built all their own tools. Uh, all their own sort of management uh, tools for data, and it was all command line driven, and, and you had to um, you had to you had to manually input everything. And I yeah. it was new to me, you know. I wasn't like a Python guy; I didn't do scripting or anything like that at that point in my career, so I was a bit slow. Now I was able to do it, but but not at the speed that they they had they had wanted me to. But they were like, you know, maybe this isn't the this isn't the the right role for you. Um, but you've obviously understand the threat landscape; you can communicate it. Maybe uh, we can put you on our team that's going to write products 
for our, our, our customers. So I said, okay, that still sounded interesting to me. I, I love to write, let's do it. And uh, they brought me in to do a writing assessment and they sat me down. And I remember I was, I was nervous. I had been, you know, reading about writing in an active voice and all this other stuff the night before sort yeah. of prep for it. And I get in there and they tell me to write about basketball. Well, I know nothing about basketball. You know nothing, John. DiMaggio. I mean, I know a ball goes in a basket, but I never played it. I didn't watch it. You know, fast forward all these years later, my kids are obsessed with it, and I do now. But back then, nothing. So, you know, I, I, wrote, I tried to write it, but I got so hung up on like what to do and how the game was played and the rules and trying to, you know, just trying to make it interesting. Cause I always like to make things interesting. And I ended up um, not, not giving them a good product. There was another analyst uh, that works there and um, I'm not going to say his name only because I don't want the company to be divulged because uh, yeah. I, I specifically don't put them on my resume and things. And I don't want it to come across as bad, but this analyst, he did believe in me. And he was like, I want you to write my next um, deliverable. So it was on a Monday and that was a Friday. So I had to work on it on the weekend, but I just wanted my chance. He gave me it and I, you know, I wrote this thing up. He turned it in and, and of course our, our boss really liked it. And he told him, Hey, John wrote this. Well, they didn't believe it. They, him, they compared it wow. to the other product and they said, you know, you, you obviously helped him with this. This is night and day difference. You know, that Friday they showed up at my desk with HR. They, took my computer. Um, I mean, they did, they did give me severance. They didn't just throw me out on the street, but they, they walked me out and were like, you know, you're not working here anymore. It's just not the right fit for you. Um, you wow. need to improve on your writing skills and you need to, to work on being, uh, improving your skills as an analyst. And I was crushed because prior to this, I mean, I was a rock star in my career, you know, I mean, I'm yeah. not, it's not, I'm not patting myself on the back. I worked hard to do that. And I, and I had such a passion for what I do. So it just crushed me. And I, I literally, I was that night, you know, I mean, I got kids, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm in my apartment. I, I'm. I literally. I was. I was crying. Like I was. Like I, I was. It was a low point in my career. Like it was a low of lows. I was like, what am I going to do? I got to get a job. I'm. You know. Do I need to like change? Maybe I need to go back to doing blue collar work. I don't know. I did a lot of thinking that over that time between you know then and, and getting another job. It was over a couple of weeks and. What I had, um, what I had decided was, you know, I I know I'm a good writer and I know I'm a great analyst and um, I get goosebumps just thinking about this. It lit a fire in me. I was like, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to get not only jobs as an analyst, I'm going to get a job in, as an analyst where the whole world sees my work. And I ended up working really hard. Um, I ended up getting a job. It was about a year and a half later, but I ended up getting a job. I uh, I went back to the to the government, by the way, after that. Uh, that incident happened. So uh, about a year and a half later, though, my government contract ended. And um, again, I had been doing blogging uh, again on the side and with the government's permission. And I went to work um, for Symantec. Once I got there, I, you know, I set the ground on fire, just lit the path to, to lead me to my success. And I had really good managers as well that helped me along the way. But I ended up on their attack investigation team, which is the team that does all of Symantec's nation state and now ransomware attacks that you read about publicly. They do it a lot less now because they're different company with Broadcom and everything else, but all the stuff they did over the years, like the Dragonfly, which was, you know, uh, Russian GRU attacking the, the energy and infrastructure, um, just all sorts of Chinese uh, advanced persistent threats, just everything that we did that was public was the work that the team I was on did. And there was 
I think there was like five analysts and, and like two, two uh, reverse engineers. So we weren't a big team and it was sort of the elite team of Symantec that everybody wanted to be on. And, and I absolutely loved it. It was my dream job. But point is I had, I, I, I had a lot of success there. And, you know, there were two guys, um, Eric Chen and uh, Vikram Thakur. And it was my boss was, was Vikram and Eric was, was his boss. And, you know, they were both very encouraging on me to, with me to, uh, to continue my path towards writing my book. I wanted to be, be with a publisher in the field. I didn't want to just do it on my own. Nothing wrong with that. But for me to prove what I needed to prove, I wanted a publisher to believe in me to put out a book because there's a difference. And so that's what I did. I started working every Sunday. I would I would spend a couple hours because every, every publisher is different, put together a publishing nomination package, send it off, get a rejection letter, send it off, get a rejection letter. And then I had this epiphany one day. I, I, I was sitting uh, I was sitting in my office and I looked over to, to, to my bookcase and I just realized that 80% of the books on my bookshelf are from No Starch Press. All my, my hacking books and things like that, you know, tools, open source or Metaspool, whatever it is, they were all from No Starch Press. And I was like, why haven't I tried applying there? And um, so I did that. I, I put put in a, nom a nomination package, sent that off, and I remember it was about a week later. I got a uh, an email back saying that uh, uh, Bill, who is the CEO over at No Starch, um, you know, and his team, they wanted to talk to me about the book. And I was so excited when I got that email. And uh, so we we had a we had a conversation about a week later, and there were a few changes that they wanted from my outline. I'd submitted a sample chapter and an outline of the book. They wanted me to change things up to be more um, interesting to a broader audience and for yeah. the first half of the book, and and then to dive into the more technical stuff for the second half. Makes sense. They're a publisher. You want to have a broader audience. And it makes it a lot more interesting, to be honest with you. So that's what we did. And uh, my dream, if you will, came true. Um, the book exists now. I saw it in the bookstore for the first time last month um, on the 26th when it came out. I mean, it's just, it's like I said, it's been like a dream for me because it's something I've wanted for so long and it, and it really happened. I love stories like that. When someone tries to put you down, it can put that fire in your belly if you like. And I, it's an encouragement to everyone watching. On my channel, it's I, I, my motto is motivate, educate. It's such a great example of motivation. You went from blue collar jobs, uh, you, you were someone, you know, didn't recognize your work. Uh, and what do you say to, you know, someone who's young? So let's say I'm 18, someone in charge doesn't recognize my capabilities or tells me I'm dumb or whatever. What would you say to that person? The first thing I would say is don't fall into the uh, pitfall of complaining about it because the reality is it's, it's it's cold world and nobody cares that that's the truth yeah. whether it's to improve whether it's that you want to show them that you really are good at what you do or whatever it is you have to find that within you got to teach either teach yourself take a class a lot of people not just young people but a lot of people fall into that cycle when they get hit with something bad it doesn't got to be as bad as like losing a job just we get you know it works something doesn't go your way or whatever it's hard to take criticism but don't let that you know affect you to where it affects your work and now you're down on yourself and or you're complaining about that person because you end up in the cycle of now you're just this person that complains about things and doesn't do good work. So invest in yourself, but you got to, here's the thing. And this is what I talk to a lot of people and a lot of people uh, hear me, but they don't hear me. You have to be willing to put in the work. Writing the book was the hardest thing that, I, that I've ever did, but throughout my career, I've, I've always been job and then working on whatever skill I want for, to get me to the next step. And, you know, a book, same thing, work my job every day. And then at night I'm working on this book, you know, it's disappointing. It's hard. So, so while I say that it, it isn't just 
you know, oh, I'm going to go do this. Like you have to be willing to put in the work, but, but double down on yourself. It doesn't matter what other people think or your boss thinks at that point, you got a whole career in front of you, double down on yourself and do whatever you want to do. I'm going to be doing, um, a filmed recording to be on a, a TV show that's owned by, by Disney that's on ransomware um, in, in a couple of weeks. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning that because like, if you would have told me even 10 years ago that I'd be in this situation, like I'd say, there's no way. So wait, it, it, it sounds silly, but when people talk about their dreams coming true, like literally everything that I wanted is coming true. And, and I've worked so hard. So like to be at this point in life where it's actually happening, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. It, it, it inspires me to want to do more, it inspires me. Like you talk about teaching, like I want to help people. I want to teach people. I want people to get to have the wonderful feeling and the wonderful life now that I've had through doing that work. And I've been through some really bad times uh, in, in my life. And, and it's just perseverance and hard work. And it's, it's gotten me here. I know it sounds cliche, but it's the truth. Well, I noticed you were working but then you kept on doing other stuff. Like you said, you're working on a help desk, but you were working on a blog on the side. You were doing your job, but then at night you were studying. This whole thing about overnight success. So yours was an overnight success. That took how many years? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I still do that. You know, you have to be passionate about what you do. So if you're in a field and you don't actually love what you're doing, it's not to say nobody loves everything that they do. I have plenty yeah. of things I don't enjoy about my job, but you know what? I, overall, I love threat intelligence. I love chasing bad guys. I love to write. I love to talk about it. And I love sharing the energy with people and, and getting my teammates motivated or getting um, a, a team, you know, that I work with motivated. And, and when you have a good attitude like that, you know, it just like, like they say negativity spreads being positive and having that energy does as well it makes everybody else want to be better but working hard and, and having those goals and and not letting anything stop you is what you do because even if you get fired from a job this doesn't stop you from working on those skills or those goals and because somebody doesn't think you do a good job maybe they're right maybe they're not but you can fix that even if they are right you know i was nowhere near the writer i am today when i wrote that basketball essay I was, in my opinion, was definitely good enough to have done the status quo for, for what that job was, but I wasn't able to write a book at that point. My, my brother's an English teacher, and when I got this, uh, when I got the book contract, I first turned in a couple hundred pages, and this is embarrassing, I don't know if I've actually told anybody this, I thought I was writing it in an active voice, but it was like, Every couple of paragraphs I would have, you know, I would have the wrong tense um, or, or the wrong voice. And I had to go back and figure that out. And I wasn't really a grammar guy. I mean, I went to school and I got a degree, but it's in computers. I didn't focus on the uh, the writing and the English aspect. So anyway, he's a high school English teacher. I had him help me. He helped teach me things. He helped review things and show me why this wasn't what it needed to be and how to correct this. And, you know, anyway, I. I did it. And after, you know, maybe a chapter or two of him helping me, you know, I was able to write moving forward and I never had an act, a, a, a passive voice again, unless I wanted it. And I always could look at a sentence and write it and know if it was active or passive. My point is, is that that's not interesting stuff. So it doesn't even matter if it interests you, if it's what you need to work to get to your goal, you just do it, you know? I love it. I mean, this is why I don't write. I, I prefer video because that active voice and grammar, wow, it's tough. Especially if you haven't studied for it, it's tough. Writing is like, uh, 
therapy for me now. And I don't mean by the content, obviously, but it's almost like playing a piano. It, it's like a Zen moment for me. It's going to sound silly. Keys going, my fingers go across the keyboard. You know, my everything, your mind is just is, is processing and fleshing out what you want to say. And you're just, you're creating this thing. And, and, you know, I like to just put on music and just go. And it is, it's literally, I mean, I find it therapeutic. Obviously not everybody's going to feel that way about writing. Whatever your thing is, you know, you just got to, got to go all in. And that means doing the things that aren't fun. Also, I, I don't like to say you're going to be the best, but if you want to be the best version of you at it, and you had to really put in that time um, and always evaluate what you can do next. You know, I'm at a point in my career right now, like I, I don't know what, what I'm going to do, do next. I've had a ton of, a very fortunate, had a ton of success, but you know, um, I might keep chasing bad guys and do this for the rest of my life, you know, or maybe, you know, a few years down the road, maybe I'll go and, um, you know, lead a team to do the type of things that I do. I, I don't know, but what I need to figure out that for me, but my point is that you're always evaluating what you want to do next. And it's not, there's anything wrong with being complacent. If you've gotten to where you go and you're happy, that's okay. But as long as you're good at what you're doing, but um, I'm just the type of person, like I always am looking towards what I can prove and what's the next step. Maybe they'll change someday, but I'm 45 years old and it hasn't yet. So I'm thinking it's not going to. I believe you never stop improving every day. Try and do something to improve yourself. But now we've been talking motivation. Let's get to education. I can see you're a good writer or a brilliant writer. The first part of the book is like a novel, more like a story. Could you give details about the book? And I don't want to give away too much like part one part two, the differences, and give us a, an idea of what the book's about. The first part is a combination of sort of a history of, of espionage and, and ransomware. Uh, when I say ransomware, I mean like organized crime type of ransomware, the big boys. Espionage, nation states. I did a lot of the investigations that are in that book. Well, I don't say I. Uh, if you look at the references, a lot of them are me. And even a lot of them that they don't have references references are because I worked on them in the government. And I just, I can only talk about the stuff that's publicly. So I just don't put my my, my name on it. But they're, they're, my, they're either my stories or stories that are important to understanding espionage. But they're cool, exciting stories to read. And, you know, the, the first part is supposed to just do that. It's supposed to enforce why you have to treat advanced threats differently. 90% of the threats that, you know, security analysts see every day are your low to mid-level mid threats that um, software automation, automated defenses are going to identify. Well, advanced threats have a human being behind it. And this is a, an argument I've had. It's much better now. To, I don't have to argue as much, but it's still an argument that you have to treat these advanced threats completely different. You have to handle them different. You have to you have to look at them like a detective as opposed to a police officer. You can't just stop the threat. You need to know why they're coming, who they're associated with, what weapons they have access to, because they're going to come back. Unlike, you know, just a police officer just wants to stop the crime now and, you know, let the courts work it out. Like that's the difference. So in these stories in the beginning is to really explain this is what happens when you don't handle these correctly, when you don't um, dedicate the right, the correct resources to it, when you don't investigate them and continue to look into why this, this attack is taking place. And these are the results and they're extreme results. And I think that first half really, really hammers home like, wow, this is a big deal that this happened. And wow, look at the ramifications because they didn't do X. And it's just so interesting because these stories are these really, really creative ideas that bad guys have had to, to defeat the good guys. And unfortunately, in a lot of most of those stories, the bad guys are the ones who, who, who win, if you will. And because I worked a lot of those, um, 
those stories, you know, all the ones that I worked from semantic forward, and I was able to write about um, in, in, in great detail because they gave me, you know, um, the thumbs up with that when I worked That's there. Right. There's a chapter on how it affects financial institutions, and it's all about uh, nation states targeting financial institutions. And then there's other stories about like the history of ransomware, how these big ransomware groups that now do, you know, enterprise attacks started because they didn't for years and years. It was just the smaller attacks um, that, you know, on somebody's computer that they got through spam in their email. And now there are these organized criminal gangs in Russia that have, you know, treated like a business and have 200 people working for them and, and are taking down the world's biggest companies. So it sort of shows that evolution, how we got to there. And then we talk about election hacking. Everybody's like, oh, election hacking. But we only think about the U.S. The model that was used against the U.S., took place tw twice, many years before against other countries, at least in, in, in the US, a lot of people aren't even aware of that. But all the signs, their playbook, everything was there for us. We just didn't, we just didn't see it. So anyway, they're just all the cool stories in the first half. And then we get to the second half where it that's really for the for the analyst. First half, anybody interested in in security, espionage, geopolitics, that they'll they'll enjoy. And I tried to write it that way. Like a spy novel, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then the second half hammers home on this is how you do it. And one of the things that differentiates me from a lot of traditional security analysts is that I came from the government. And because of that, I was an intelligence analyst first. So I went to school and I learned analytical models and theories that prevent you as a human being um, from making the wrong assessment or from making a, a, a call based on your gut or an assumption. I took a lot of the models uh, that I used and I've and I altered them over the years to fit as I as I left the government, things changed. So I made those models change to fit on how to do attribution on you know how to do different types of um, analytical workflows just just to keep that your data flow structure and to make sure that you're uh, you know keeping everything true and how to create a hypothesis and then use that flow to have data to either prove disprove or to prove it and then how to qualify that you know using different sort of classifications I don't mean government classifications but I mean how, is this you know low medium high confidence, those sort of things, how to do time zone assessments when you have attackers um, come in. You can actually get an idea of where they are in the world um, by, by doing time zone assessments. And you do pull all this information from headers, from emails that come in, spear phishing emails. And then I go from that. How do you analyze spear phishing emails starting from the bottom up? These are the fields that are pertinent. This is why they're pertinent. This is the story it tells you. And this is how you can use it against your adversary. We go through all of these things and tools that I use, um, a lot of open source, some that are for pay, but I really wanted a researcher, somebody who just had a passion like me to be able to get this book and, and be able to actually use the tools. And because you can't afford that if you're just a researcher you're doing it for fun, you got a $8,000 a month virus total subscription. That's yeah. just not realistic. So we talk about ways to get around those things and, and alternatives um, in addition to those type of things you could use in your work. And then finally, at the end, we have a threat profiling chapter. It explains how to do threat profiling, which is the behavioral aspect, which is very important with advanced threats because they're humans behind it. And then we do a use case. And in that use case, uh, we take a APT-28, which is a Russian GRU, one of their intelligence agencies. We take a spear phishing email. It's one email. We use all these tools and resources. You know, we take the data, we pivot, we collect, we analyze, repeat the process, document, and we're done with it. And when we're done with it, we've laid out this massive infrastructure, all these personas, all these spear phishing emails, all these organizations that were targeted that all sort of fit into a political playbook, if you will, to fit Russia's needs. And it's just, it's 
I mean, I, I even get excited when I did it because I didn't expect it to come out that good. Like that was just, it, it was, it was a little bit of luck. It, be, it came like the perfect example and it's a little bit dated, you know, it's from like 2014, the spearfishing email, but yeah. it was just, it tells such a good story and it made for such a good teaching example. And because it comes from a Russian intelligence agency, I just, I had to use it. It just brings everything taught together. And uh, I think it makes for a nice picture at the end to, to really feel like you've grasped the book, if you will. I saw a five-star review on Amazon about the book and the person who wrote it. I can't remember exactly, but it was something along the lines that this is for CEOs, for analysts, for techies, for everyone. Is that right? Is that, is that a good synopsis? It is. And I really wanted to inspire people, whether they were in just regular IT, whether they were in college and they were want to explore this, I want to inspire them. And I think that's what the first half does because you could be at an airport or an airplane reading the book. And I know I'm obviously I'm going to be biased, but it's just like, I, I've, I've reread it. Like it I, it, I just enjoy the stories and they're just cool, fun stories. It literally, they're spy stories, literally talking about spies. There's part on the U S too, just because I worked for the U S doesn't mean I excluded them. My publisher wouldn't let me cause I did exclude them at the beginning. Uh, so I had to, you know, it's got all the big, the big players, countries and stories of, of things that took place. And it just really, really interesting. You know, I had to learn more about uh, nuclear, centrifuges than I ever thought I would to write this book because of Stuxnet in the US and Israel and Iran. And, you know, so, so it wasn't just cyber I had to learn about to write this book. I had to really dig in because I wanted to know everything. There were some, some crypto spy aspects to this that go with the NSA back into, um, you know, like the fifties and sixties. And, and a lot of that stuff was declassified. So I was able to read all that. And there was some amazing stories in there that I was just like, wow, this is cool. So, and that sort of laid the foundation into where we go today with things. So anyway, stuff like that is in there, but yeah, the, 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 the aspect of, I wanted like leaders to be able to, to look at this book and be able to understand it. I tried to write it um, in parts of it are very technical, but I tried to write a, a lot of it in a way that would be something that, you know, you could understand. So if you're a leader or decision maker and you have finding yourself facing advanced threats, I wanted you to know, how do I think about this? What should my mindset be? What are the things that are going to be important? Um, and, and, and how do I need to think about this as, as I move forward or, or make decisions? So I, I tried to write, yes, I, I tried to incorporate in that into every chapter, not just to be in the second half where it's, 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 for, you know, does a lot of talk that would help analysts, but it also is meant to, to take it to that next level where it can be actionable. You can make a plan. You can understand the relevant pieces to it. That's going to help a decision maker. Cause that's where, I mean, that's where I am in my career today. I'm, I'm at that more the, the decision maker part. I still, because I love it. I, I, all the blogs and stuff that in reports I write right today, they're all free. They go out. My company just publishes them free. So I do that because right. I love to do it. It's really to get people excited and to teach analysts to be better analysts and to teach decision makers what they need to do and what they need to look at when it comes to dealing with what's probably going to be the worst day of their their career if they're dealing with this and you know since i've i've written this book i've actually gotten calls um, i'm not going to say the organizations but i've actually gotten calls um, from organizations from CISOs and CEOs on days where for, they just got hit by a major ransomware attack and their entire infrastructure is locked down and they don't know what to do. My company is not a ransomware response company. The fact that they're calling me on this day, you know, it tells me, I, I again, not putting myself in the back, but tells me that I did a good job and it encourages me that I want to do more. I want to help them, but that, 
that that's my point is the book is is definitely something that can be used as a tool and it can also be something that's used as just to get a really good understanding of cyber espionage and to enjoy reading the stories about it hello there you've got a new a new person in the room that's tyson so during the pandemic it was just me him and my, my two boys and you know they'd be downstairs playing video games or something and he'd sit right here and because i you know normally i, I used to work in a building every day i'd have people to talk to so i sit here and i he would just look at me <laughs> and i would bounce all my ideas and talk to him people thought i was crazy he's in my dedication to the book he, he's in there because i literally i talked everything out with him because talking it out helped me before I, I would write about it does this make sense i know people think i'm crazy but i talked to that dog that dog knows more about cyber uh, intelligence probably than any other animal on the earth on earth that's, that's brilliant so we have him to thank for writing the book yep and uh, well, for you writing the book no it's um no it's brilliant i um want to help people who perhaps are struggling with leadership what's the difference between like a standard attack and like what you're covering here and how can the book help someone who's got leadership who don't want to give them funding because you, you know that old old joke there's no money for for security until they've been attacked and then there's plenty of money so how, can this book help someone you know who with leadership who don't quite understand the biggest difference between these attacks is um, espionage or, or um, you know, e e even organized crime, organized crime like these ransomware gangs, they took, they learned from all the reports that we put out publicly about espionage attacks taking place over the years. They literally took um, those TTPs, those methods, and they incorporated into their own playbook. Ransomware was that it, it evolved into this thing that fit the pattern of nation state, because I was the nation state guy at Symantec, like that's all I did. And it fit the pattern. So we start looking at it and I'd be thinking when I first started looking at it, this has got to be a nation state behind this, even though we don't normally see uh, you know, them doing it for financial crime. And that was, that was at that time. Now that's different. We've got North Korea does it all day, every day. When you have an advanced threat, whether it's espionage, I used to just be able to say espionage. I can't anymore. Cause it's, it's not just espionage, but in advanced threat, the main difference is there is a motivated human or humans with an objective. And, you know, they're going to spend time on your network. They're going to try to get into it. Um, you know, we, we would see, I'm going to give you two examples. We would see uh, like North Korea when they were attacking the Bank of uh, Bangladesh, they spent a year prior, an entire year preparing for that before they actually tried to make the, even the first fraudulent transaction a year. Your traditional regular criminal, regular automated threat, whatever they most of the stuff that you see, they're they're not spending a day, let alone a year. You know, they're using a tool, they're send they're they're weaponizing something and they're sending it out to you know 10,000 people that they got from a, a spam list. You know, this is a person with an objective. They're gonna try to get in. And if they can't get into your network, and I know this because I, I as a defender, I saw it, you know, they're gonna come back, they're gonna have multiple campaigns. It's never once when you have a when you realize it's an advanced threat and it's a nation state, it is, that's what they call it a campaign. There is going to be many attacks to for a single objective. They're going to try to get in. They're going to target certain programs and certain people, and they're going to keep coming back. They're going to target them in their personal uh, infrastructure, their personal email, the personal accounts. They're going to target them at work. They're going to try and find vulnerabilities in, in your public facing infrastructure. You know, I, I did an assessment once for, for a company and one of the executives, they used RDP and he had a page with his username at the top because he couldn't remember it so that he could log in from home. And I'm just like, like this wasn't that many years ago and I, I'm giving away who it was or anything, but it was, I was like, I was shocked. And in my head, I was like, this dude needs to be fired. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous.
ridiculous. This is why companies and, and our data is going out the window is because you want to can't remember your username and want ease of use. So you made a web page with RDP open for it. Anyhow, uh, neither here nor there. Point is, is that people just don't get it. So that I wanted to write the book and explain like the advanced threats are human motivated. They're not going away. They have time. And when they're government um, backed, they have all they have, they have resources, they have money. They're developing malware the world has never seen. So uh, at least for a decent percentage of its lifetime, antivirus isn't even going to detect it because they're going to use it on small groups. That's why it's targeted. And if you're one of those groups, it's your, your software detection, your automated detection isn't going isn't gonna to flag it. And if it does, it may not flag it correctly, and it may flag it as a lesser threat because it identifies something minimal in it. And if you're not on your toes, it's going to go by, they're going to get in. And once they're in, and it's usually that's where, where, we, where the, the job comes in with advanced threats. Honestly, yeah, there are, you can keep them out, but a lot of times you find them because they're already in your network. And at that point, that's where the hunt has to start. And that's where, if you don't get it, th this is where the story goes south. Okay. So if you don't understand that this is a, a much different animal, if you will, than your traditional threats, because of the things that I just said, that's where you're going to lose because now you're not, as a leader, you're not going to dedicate the right uh, resources to it. And as a leader, people say to me, attribution, um, you know, they don't care about attribution. Attribution is extremely important with advanced threats. I need to know, let's say it's a, a specific group from North Korea that's in my network at my company and I'm a, a CISO or I'm running a security operations center. I need to know the, that attacker's preferences because they are humans. They're going to have preferences for tools. They're going to have preferences for scripts. They're going to have prefer preferences for how they do certain things like enumerating your network or turning off security controls. They're going to be things that are common to them because they do this day after day after day in different environments. And that's going to be different for, for different groups with different people. So by threat profiling, you create like a one or two page, easy to read. I call it, I always, I, whenever I talk about this, I reference like the back in the day, the GI Joe toys you would buy in the back of the box, the action figures, they'd have a little card and it would have like what they do, what their weapon specialties are, who they worked for, you know, and, and that's what this is. This tells you what the bad guy does what their you know personas are what tools they like to use where they like to move throughout your network all that sort of thing is on there and that's what i'm saying the leader once you understand it's an advanced threat once you do some level of attribution to understand who that is now it, you can plan on how to use resources to defend against them and if you're already doing a robust cyber uh, threat intelligence plan you're going to have these things because you're going to be doing it part of your day-to-day -day operation of having threat profiles of of having um you know, TTPs for advanced actors identified. And then, you know, so it's not like it just happens and now I got to put all this together. It's part of your program. So now when you see one of these threats, you've got an expert in the room because you've hired an analyst who's, or a team of analysts, depending on what your budget is, to handle advanced threats. And they know these attackers. They've got the profile. So the, so the regular defenders who don't know them and leadership can read to understand this is who our enemy is. This is who our attacker is. This is what motivates them. And in the past, this is what they've gone after and what they've done. Now we can make decisions. How are we going to handle this? We know what they're probably going after. We know what they've done before. Now we can actually get our threat hunters in here and kick their ass out of here. If you are going to work, and, and unfortunately, there's a lot of analysts. I don't, I'm not going to be negative for most of this, but I am for this because it's something that, that bothers me. A lot of analysts go to work every day and they sit there and they wait for their screen to turn red and tell them that something bad is happening. We are long past that. You should be excited 
creative and just as creative as the bad guy. You should be looking at everything besides those alerts. Not to say you don't pay attention to those, but what I'm saying is when you're threat hunting, you want to be creative. Let's think like a bad guy. Let's go look at things where nobody else would bother to look at because they're they're normally not, you know, signs that something's wrong and figure something out. Something all it has takes one little thing that doesn't look right and it unravels a whole story. This is how I got into this is embarrassing. This is how I got into to ransomware. I used to I did. I, I used to, to to put my nose up to ransomware because, you know, it was uh, up until 2015, uh, the, the late 2015. Prior to that, all ransomware was, uh, all of it, it was spray and pray, meaning mass mailing lists for spam with some, you know, automated ransomware binary that encrypts your one computer. And most of the time that encryption, if, if you knew what you were doing, could even be broke. I think it was May 12th. 2017, um, my boss came to me and said, there's something going on. There's a big ransomware attack. I need you to look at it. And he walked away. That was Eric Shen, who I was talking about earlier at Symantec. And I looked over, um, there was another analyst that I worked with, a guy named Sylvester Segura. Uh, he was new um, to the team and I was training him at the time. And uh, I looked at him and I'm like, dude, why are we looking at ransomware? Like, I'm like, there's automation that can handle this. Like, why are we the ones looking at it? And my boss heard me and he kind of gave me this look. That ended up being WannaCry. Oh, wow. <laughs> I bought up putting your foot in your mouth, like the biggest attack the world has seen. And I was putting my nose up to it. You can't let yourself get to a certain point where you think, and I'm not saying I thought it was too good for, but you think something is not worth looking at, not worth investigating, or ah, this is just too low level. You have to, you have to understand that, you know, bad guys change, TTPs change, and sometimes they're going to reinvent the wheel. And that's what they did with ransomware. And, you know, that was 2017, but the signs were there in 2015. It was the, they were in Iran, but the same, same guys were the first group that created this enterprise ransomware model where they would shut down an entire organization and it just grew from there. But my, my point is, is that, you know, because it wasn't prevalent and it wasn't what I was looking at every day, when that big attack happened, it I would have looked the other way if my boss didn't say to look at this. And, you know, shame on me. But that that's a great story, though, why you can't do that. My job's really evolved. And, uh, you know, I do so much ransom where I really want to get more espionage. So es espionage, bad guys, I need you to do more because I'm <laughs> doing way too much <laughs> ransomware these days. Uh, no, I love what I do. So I get really, when I get in, in an interesting, creative, bad guy, I get really excited. And, and sometimes people, often people misplace that. All right, do you, are you like rooting for them? And I'm like, no, but this is so cool. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Going back to semantic, we did a study of uh, five of the big ransomware groups and we looked at, um, from when the first time that they got on uh, a network, when they when they first got initial access, to when they actually executed their ransomware payload, and we were finding that it went from three days to three weeks, and the average was about seven to ten days. But my point being is, I don't think most people realize that there are there's or it's there's some of the best hackers in the world, but they're literally on your network for that long, you have that much time to catch them. 
And, and my team, we did. We caught them all the time. Garmin ended up getting hit because they weren't one of our customers. And I don't work for Semantic anymore, so it's not a sales pitch. But there was 30 other customers and there was like 27 of them were US companies and it was Evil Corp and they were in their networks and they were doing this massive campaign and they were staging and turning off the security controls and enumerating and they were literally placing the ransomware payloads on all their key servers. Um, again, it was 30 companies and most of them Fortune 500 and we were able to stop that and the one a month later that hit the news was Garmin unfortunately um, we didn't have anything to do with that one but unfortunately they got hit and it cost them 10 million dollars 10 million dollars and that was the, the first time we saw a ransom go from hundreds of thousands to millions but the point in the story is like I mean it used to be nation state was your worst threat it's I'd arguably say that that's not the case anymore well that's that would be your second worst threat because ransomware not only they're encrypting your data now they're stealing it and now they're even doing third extortion where they're doing a denial of service on your on your infrastructure. So even if you do have some public facing infrastructure up, they're making sure your company, uh, your customers can access it. So when people say don't pay a ransom anymore, I, I'm like, you do what you got to do to keep your company alive. I mean, it's just insane, you know, uh, what it costs to rebuild an infrastructure. Um, I think the the one that's been documented where uh, I can't think of their name. It's a big it, it was a big company and it was the maze ransom where a group also known as Twisted Spider who did this, but they they demanded, a, it was a uh, like a Fortune 20 company and they demanded uh, 14, 10 or $14 million ransom and they decided not to pay it and they decided to rebuild on their own. Um, a year later, a journalist contacted them and they were open and talked to them about it. And the the, the cost that, that it, what they incurred to rebuild was $70 million, okay? Wow. Do you think if they could go back and pay that whatever 10 or $14 million they would have? I, I guarantee you that that they would. And then, you know, there's like TravelX, they got hit with, with ransomware. They handled it incorrectly. They tried to hide it under the rug. They tried to minimize it. They didn't realize the advanced threat that it actually was. They should have, my book wasn't out, but if it was, they should read it and uh they got hit they went out of business once upon a time a man got fucked now how is that for a story because that's the story of black people in america <laughs> shit you all don't know you black yet you think you just people let me be the first to tell you that you are all black. The moment these Dutch motherfuckers set foot here and decided they're white and you get to be black and that's the nice name they call you, let me paint a picture of what's waiting for you on the shore. You arrive in America, land of opportunity, milk and honey, and guess what? You all get to be slaves, split up, sold off, and worked to death. The lucky ones get Sunday off to sleep and fuck and make more slaves and all for what? For cotton, indigo, for a fucking purple shirt. The only good news is the tobacco your grandkids are gonna farm for free. It's gonna give a shitload of these white motherfuckers cancer. And I ain't even started yet. A hundred years later, you're fucked. A hundred years after that, fucked. 
A hundred years after you get free, you still getting fucked out of job and shot at by police. You see what I'm saying? This guy gets it. I like him. He's getting angry. Angry is good. Angry gets shit done. You shed tears for Kumbi and Nancy. And here he is telling you. You are staring down the barrel of 300 years of subjugation, racist bullshit, and heart disease. He is telling you there is one goddamn reason you shouldn't go up there right now and slit the throats of every last one of these Dutch motherfuckers and set fire! To this ship! Mana, you got me like a buckle. And you need like a wolf. You are already dead, asshole. At least die a sacrifice for something worthwhile. Let the motherfucker burn. Not at all! Burn! <laughs> <laughs>